And today's episode, we have Kimberly back because we didn't get to everything. We still have a listener letter. Uh It's actually a letter sort of to you, but sort of to us about uh, Patreon support for Mm -hmm. this listener was able to acquire, shall we say, counseling through you, through Flourish. Mm -hmm. I probably just botched that whole thing. You get the idea. (laughs) <laughs> Everything you said is accurate. And when we get ready to read the letter, I'll do a little more explaining because some clients or some people out there listening might be confused as to why I would actually read a letter from one of my clients. And we can talk about that a little further in more in more detail. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. And also there are more questions uh, as follow-up to that episode we did on narcissism and codependency. So we've got some more questions to answer. You specifically will be answer. I'll be asking them. And you will be answering them. I'm here to answer all the questions. <laughs> like all of them. Is Santa Claus real? What the fuck is up with that elf on the shelf? <laughs> and maybe we can throw in some Bigfoot chat too. You've been wanting to do that. Oh, I'm dying to throw in some Bigfoot content. <laughs> okay, well, let's get to it. Let's take a little break and get into all that when we come back. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Lesbian, the podcast about an ex-Mormon gay girl trying to figure out her life. I'm Mary. And I am Kimberly, not Shelly. That is correct. You are not (laughs) Shelly. I mean, if anybody was wondering. (laughs) Just to clarify, we want to make sure people know. Yep. We want to get it all cleared up. All cleared up. Welcome, Kimberly. We're happy to have you back. And by we, I mean me, really. The royal bee. <laughs> For sure. It was so fun to, to be in the studio in your place. Oh, yeah. With Eddie and Domino. Eddie licked my hand like the whole freaking time. It was beautiful. <laughs> it was beautiful. How did you concentrate with the hand licking? Oh, this is nothing new. As a therapist, <laughs> we learn to multitask like 30 things at the same time. So having a dog lick my hand during session, is that's baseline right there. So when your clients lick your hand, you know, it's a safety thing, a comfort. Do you provide that? No, no. My clients <laughs> never lick my hand, but occasionally a therapy dog might lick my hand. That's right. Therapy dogs. Mm -hmm. That's kind of cool. Or therapy turtle, therapy echidna. You know, there's all (laughs) kinds of therapy support animals. Support turtles? I like it. Support turtle, yeah. I had turtles uh, when I was a little kid. I did. I like turtles. (laughs) I like turtles, too. (laughs) I like turtles. (laughs) Tell me about your fascination with Bigfoot. I don't think I quite understand it. Or maybe I just have, I'm not privy to it. Oh, like, can I legitimately go into it? Yeah, do it. Wow. Once upon a time, I was a photographer working on a project on the Great Salt Lake in Utah for about 20 years off and on. And I was working on my Master of Fine Arts degree, and I was using the Great Salt Lake as my subject material for my thesis project. When 
you photograph the same thing for 20 years, 25 years, you kind of get a little bit tired of it. And I needed, I needed a break. And I thought, okay, what will keep me uh, captivated intellectually? I love history. I love maps. I love storytelling. I love legend. I love myth. I love uh, mountains. I wanted something that would get me into the freshwater spaces of Utah, into the green spaces of Utah. And I wanted to photograph. And so I thought, okay, well, I want to tell a story about you know, a regional thing. And I thought back to my childhood, and my father would tell us stories of Bigfoot around the campfire when we were kids. And they would scare the living shit out of us. And I thought, I wonder if there are any Bigfoot sighting reports in Utah. So I fired up Google, and wouldn't you know, there's an entire database of these things. So I, I narrowed it down from hearing things, seeing footprints, ghostly shadow, down to eyewitness account of, I saw this thing, it looked like this thing. I could count fingers on its hands, I could count, uh, the, the, I could look at its neck shape. Um, it looked me in the eye. I know what color its eyes were. Wow. And there's a written statement of this person's eyewitness account with Bigfoot. I would take that and print it out, and I would go to the location, and I would photograph the site, just the site, not trying to prove anything about Bigfoot, just interpreting the location as its narrative you know, indicates where they were. So before long, I have 10 sites, 20 sites, 30 sites. I visit special collections at Utah State University, which has an entire... Um, mythology collection. Utah State has a giant collection of legend and folklore from the area that students have been collecting for 30, 40 years. Mm. I tapped into that collection and looked through thousands and thousands of pages looking for stories of Bigfoot. And I started a blog with these images and the narrative. And before too long, people would actually write in and they would submit to me their stories. Oh, wow. So I initially was looking for stories and ultimately, people were bringing me their stories. That's great. And at this point, um, there's a couple of TV shows about Bigfoot. Some producers contacted me about you know helping them produce their TV show. And I'm like, I kind of have no interest in the focus of your television production. I just kind of kept doing my thing. Um, and that project lasted a little over five years. Hmm. And I think I've photographed about 150, 160 locations. I have well over 250 sites that I still could photograph in Utah and in the, the greater Western United States. When I was in Virginia visiting you guys and other people, I looked for Bigfoot sightings in that area where we were down by Lee's Ferry, or I'm sorry, Harper's Ferry. Mm -hmm. Didn't find any Bigfoot sightings there. And there are many Bigfoot sightings nearby. So I'm kind of thinking this could I could make an extension on my Bigfoot project. That's pretty cool. In, on the East Coast, because there's Bigfoot everywhere. There are lots of Bigfoots. And then there's a Mormon connection with Bigfoot. I don't want to spill the beans. Because I do have a Sunstone presentation I want to make. Really? About Bigfoot and Mormonism. Bigfoot and Mormonism. Yeah. Well, maybe we should revisit that yeah. after that presentation. Oh, we, there, I can guarantee you there is a there was a future LDL podcast about Bigfoot and Mormonism. <laughs> okay. And I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, we'll table that for now. We'll table that, yeah. We'll table it. Uh, you hinted at doing some maybe Bigfoot research on the East Coast. <gasps> you know, we never talked about that last time. We did not talk about this last time. What might bring you to the East Coast part-time? Yes, I have um, had a remarkable opportunity extended to me to join uh, the clinicians at a Wellness Center in Falls Church as a part-time resident and um, taking clients in Virginia. My Virginia resident, that's what, what's it called, a resident marriage and family therapist temporary license is in the pipeline. Awesome. Uh, and then I'll be able to see clients in Virginia 
uh, probably by the time this airs, actually, I will have seen several clients. I'm, I'm sending out uh, phone calls and emails to referrals, and I will be kind of just taking, you know, general clientele. Uh, but I'll be focusing on LGBTQ, specifically trans uh, individuals like I'm doing here in Utah. Mm-hmm. And the idea is I, I moved to Utah from California, from the Bay Area, specifically to work with queer and trans clients. I am not abandoning my clients here in Utah. I've been processing this idea of spending three weeks in Utah, three weeks in Virginia, three weeks in Utah, three weeks in Virginia, and doing that kind of a balance. Yeah. Uh, and we'll see how that works out. Of course, there are no there there are no promises, no expectations, no strings attached. This is just a really wonderful opportunity to expand my reach. And I actually asked my supervisor, Dr. Lisa Tensmeyer Hansen. I said, "How do you feel about me doing this?" And she said, "There's a lot of Mormons and former Mormons in the Virginia D.C. area that would really benefit from a Mormon competent and ex-Mormon competent uh, therapist in that area." So I'm really excited to see what we can do. In fact, we were talking about doing a religious trauma a support group for anyone in high demand religion, uh, Judaism, Mormonism, uh, Seventh-day Adventist, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, and doing an in-person uh, religious trauma support group in Falls Church coming up pretty soon. So I'm excited about that. Evangelical in the house. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, definitely evangelicals for sure. <laughs> for, for sure. For sure. Yep. Catholic, Southern Baptist. The list goes on and on and on. All of it. Yep. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. I know. And now I need to just buy a car. So I'm, if anyone in the in the D.C. area, uh, greater metro D.C. area has an older Saab that runs well, I'm looking particularly for either a Saab 900 Turbo or a Saab 9.3 or a Saab 9.4. Interesting. That is very specific. You have specific tastes in vehicles. Very specific. Okay, good to know. You know, the way your life has been going, I I wouldn't be surprised if uh, you get that sob in short order. Seriously. I have been taught by the universe that the more I let go of control, the more the universe gives me exactly precisely what I need and more. It's been a really beautiful exercise. Yeah. I am seeing that in you. Well, and you saw it the whole time I was there. Yeah. We may hear a little dog barking uh, in this episode per per usual. We like little dogs. Uh, Do you want to get into that letter? I know we teased that letter quite a bit the last time and then never got to it. And I was personally bummed that we didn't get to uh, read that letter. That's okay. We can't do, you can't do everything in one podcast, which is what I really kind of like about this is that we have a chance to have an ongoing dialogue. Yeah. Uh, And I I never feel like I'm in a hurry to get everything recorded for the podcast because I know there will always be a next time. Yeah. There's always another one. So let me let me give the setup on this particular this particular letter. This is written by a client of mine. And when I thought about coming out there and doing a podcast with you in Virginia, I thought it might be a really neat opportunity for one of the beneficiaries of the very generous Patreon uh, benefactors. It might be a really nice chance for this individual, to write a letter and express their gratitude and their experience with the listeners and how the donations have benefited her. I hesitated to ask her because there is, of course, a power dynamic between the therapist and the the client. And sometimes you don't want to burden your client with too much responsibility because really the the relational dynamic really is the client-centered. The the client is the the nucleus, the focus of of the relationship between the client and the therapist. And to ask anything of the client does put them in a bit of a compromising position, but we have been working together. Honestly, she's one of my very first clients with Flourish, Mm. and we have such a good working relationship, and she has confronted me and challenged me in sessions 
the therapeutic relationship with her is one of the most beautiful things that I've ever had. Nice. Um, as far as, you know, negotiating, conflict resolution, she works very, very hard. And so I asked her, I said, would you mind writing a letter so that listeners can hear this? You know, I had to have it in writing. So it's all via emails, uh, you know, her release of information to share this letter. Mm-hmm. And I gave her the option. I said, you can do this either anonymously or you can do this uh, and attach your name to it if you'd like. Either way is up to you. Gotcha. She was very adamant that she wanted her name attached to it. And I said, are you sure? I gave her a lot of chances to say no. Hmm. She said, no, I, I want to have my name attached to this. And I said, all right, let's do this. Yeah. So she wrote this letter and I read through it and I just, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through this without crying. I'm going to try. And it's okay if you cry. It's okay to cry. That's right. Thank you. You're going to be a great therapist one day, Mary. <laughs> As we've proven on this podcast before, it is absolutely okay. Better than okay if you cry. And I encourage crying. In fact, I've cried more in the past two weeks than I think I have in the past 20 years. Oh, wow. It's been really beautiful. Yeah. All right. So should I just dive in? Dive into it. All right. May 2021. Dear Mary, Shelley, Kimberly, and the LDL listeners. Hi. It's so exciting to be writing this letter to you. My name is Mackenzie. And I'm a 23-year-old ex-Mormon bisexual girl living in Utah, just trying to figure out her life. (laughs) I left the church right as I turned 21 after reading the whole CES letter and seeing that dumb illustration of Joseph Smith with his dumb face and his dumb hat. (laughs) I left after being raised in it, having approximately 500 different faith crises, like 100 different mediocre boyfriends, and wondering, why can't I reach that perfect celestial happiness that other people seem to have? Mm. Anyway... I'm a longtime listener of the podcast. Yes, I did start listening at the beginning, and I'm all cut up. <laughs> we'll plug for, Sh- for Shelly there. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Feed her ego. Shelly will be happy. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and directly because of that, Kimberly has been my therapist for about a year now. Wow. I heard about Flourish on the pod, and it sounded like exactly what I needed. I was severely struggling at the time during the early days of the pandemic when I felt like my whole life was both crumbling and on fire. Mm. I specifically requested Kimberly, and I think I was one of her very first clients at Flourish. At first, I was nervous and starstruck to be talking to her because I was such a big fan of her, and I kind of feel the same way while writing this letter for you guys. (laughs) Also, a slightly off-topic confession, sometimes on the Facebook group, I see people saying, I wish Kimberly was my therapist, and I really have to keep myself from bragging. (laughs) I can't even begin to describe to you what both this podcast and Flourish Therapy has meant to me and how much they've changed my life. Kimberly can attest to how much I've grown and struggled and fought for the life I know I deserve. Mm. A year ago, I had lost literally every friendship I ever had and felt like the universe was playing a cruel prank on me. Mm. I was working a soul-sucking, panic-inducing job at Walmart and then became unemployed for the second time this year. That year, sorry. I was living in motherfucking Provo, then had to move back in with my parents, who are wonderful and considerate people, but still Mormon. Mm -hmm. My relationship with my parents is ever-evolving, but it was not as good back then. I am the oldest child and the only girl, so the adjustment to letting me be my own person has been a long process. I bet. And I went through a very sad and tragic breakup with the only girlfriend I've ever had. So, yeah, all this was happening at the same time. Mm. I felt a deep sense of pain and abandonment and irreparable loss every day. I had only my parents, my sibling, and Kimberly. 
I'm not trying to make this letter sound like an advertisement testimonial, but this podcast and therapy were very much my biggest lifelines. Wow. All I can say is thank you for being there for me. Thank you for donating to Flourish so I could get the help I needed, and thank you to the patrons. I don't even know how to express my gratitude. Life recently hasn't been easy since recovering from COVID. Those long-term symptoms are no joke, (laughs) but I'm still working hard to grow my support system and support myself. I have a much better job now. I've got an incredibly supportive and loving boyfriend of six months. I've been public with my experience leaving the church by making YouTube videos. Mm. It's been a really interesting experience to be an LGBTQ Mormon woman on the internet, as I'm sure Kimberly and Shelley can relate to, and marry as an ex-Christian. The intersection of angry religious people, sexists, and homophobes is not a comfortable place sometimes, Mm -mm. but the beautiful comments make it worth it. Thanks so much for reading my letter. I love all of you, including the listeners. Thank you for being my continual safe space. Mm. Love, Mackenzie. There's a P.S. that's kind of tear jerky. Okay. P.S. Kimberly, I know I see you every week, but I feel like I can never say it enough. Thank you so much for being my biggest cheerleader and my most trusted support. Thank you for using your energy each and every day to make a huge positive difference in this world. You've made a world of difference for me. That's Mackenzie. Thank you. On a personal note, thank you, Mackenzie. You are truly amazing. What a fantastic letter. And hear, hear to that P.S. I concur wholeheartedly about Kimberly in this world and your contribution. No, thank you. I'm just trying to do my best. I know. And we're all benefiting from it. Seriously. No, thank you. And how much do I love that here's Mackenzie leaving the Mormon church and now she's putting out YouTube videos about it. You know what I mean? Like, like just putting it out there, right? What kind of courage does that take? There is so much healing power in sharing our stories. Yes. I cannot stress that enough. Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Gosh, Mackenzie, thank you, thank you, thank you for writing that letter. It's so inspiring also to other listeners who might be screwing up the courage to write a letter of their own or maybe to be seeking therapy. You know, it's just, it's so great. Yeah, I'm deep, I'm breathing deep for all those people that are in that space. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the way that we can all encourage people and I, yeah. I just love it. Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Thank you, Mackenzie. And thanks for letting me share. Yes, thank you for sharing. Uh, as a reminder, if you would like to send us a letter, please visit latterdaylesbian.org slash contact and get in touch. Or just get in touch with Kimberly and she'll read it. That's that option. Uh, and <laughs> I'm going to actually... Maybe not. Can I set a boundary? <laughs> can I set a boundary? Yes, you can. Absolutely. Because it's, it's going to be way easier for them to contact you because if they contact <laughs> me, then there is an implication of a therapeutic relationship. And then it comes with a whole can of worms. Yeah. Just please, listeners, I love, I love when you reach out, but I can't answer very many, if any, direct messaging. <laughs> <clears throat> Boundaries. <clears throat> <clears throat> Yeah. Um, let's take a little commercial break and then we can get into some uh, more listener questions about narcissism and codependency. What do you think? <sighs> codependency. Yes. Let's do it. Okay. We'll be right back. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? 
We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Before we get into these questions, is there anything else you want to um, highlight here or talk about? We've checked off the Bigfoot conversation. Okay, Bigfoot, check. Check. LDL, letter, check. <laughs> yeah. Temporary license in uh, or moving into licensure in Virginia, check. Sob request. A sob request, check. <laughs> sob request. S-A-A-B, not S-O-B. <laughs> S-A-A-B, yep. Oh, I got to drive a Tesla last time I was there. That was pretty cool. Oh, wow. That's exciting. The dual motor Tesla. Oh, sure. Anything electric. I guess that tools your round. We like all the electric things. Yes. Yep. Why not? Cords, cordless. We will take them all. Oh my God. That reminds me. I was driving around uh, this neighborhood <laughs> recently. Non sequitur. Seriously. I'd never seen this before. No, it's kind of related sort of. It was a Roomba that mows lawns. What? It was a lawn mowing Roomba. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen because it looked like a vacuum cleaner. A friend of mine just got an electric lawnmower. It doesn't have a cord. Does it look like a Roomba? Because that's what this thing was. I haven't seen photographs of it, but I've heard it. They, they ain't cheap, so it's probably pretty cool. I bet. It's a big commitment to lower your carbon footprint to invest in an electric Roomba lawnmower. Yeah. What keeps someone from stealing that electric Roomba lawnmower? Well, you wouldn't have the ability to charge it. Oh, you can buy anything on eBay. Well, you could. That's true. That is true. I don't know. I guess what keeps anybody from stealing the baby Jesus off of any lawn nativities in December? <laughs> but the difference is that costs four ninety nine, <laughs> and the Roomba uh, lawnmower probably costs like a thousand bucks or something. Another small difference: one of them is real and one of them is fake. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Um. Okay. Should we dive into some more of these? Uh, Follow-up questions. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Well, the first set is about codependency. Mm, okay. So here we go. The listener says, you've realized you're in a codependent relationship. Now what do you do? Mm. A lot of it depends on what kind of a relationship it is. I mean, we have all kinds of relationships. We have business relationships. We have friendship relationships. We have a relationship with our pool boy sometime. Oh, that's a bad example, but kind of a fun example, uh, <laughs> the cabana boy. Uh, we have relationships with our partners. We have relationships with our children. We have relationships with our legally married spouses mm -hmm. or, you know, poly systems or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Or best friends in the case of Shelly. Which, and I'm thinking actually probably still is a little bit of a codependent relationship. Inner brain, yeah. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Precisely. In her in her headspace still, there is a real hesitance and a reluctance to commit to not letting that person cross her boundaries. Right. And that word boundary is kind of the key element to a codependent relationship. What do we do with that other person that we're codependent with or that we realize we're codependent with? I think the first step that you can do is realize the nature and the severity 
and the different ways that you're codependent with an individual. Do you rely on them for housing? Do you rely on them for tuition? Do you rely on them for rent or cell phone bills or clothing or spending money? Or do you rely on them for, you know, bigger things like sex? Do you rely on them for employment? Uh, do you rely on them for, um, well, any number of things? Are you borrowing their car? Mm-hmm. One of the main things that you can do is just recognize the nature of the codependency. Recognize the way in which you are codependent. And then you can say, oh, I'd like to move away from that codependent cycle. I'd like to move out of that. And then just that alone, noticing that shift in yourself, noticing that shift in your headspace, going from, I don't know that I'm in one, I'm realizing I'm in one, now I want to move out of that codependent system. That is a huge, big, giant shift. And it sounds like this listener is already realizing it. Yeah. So now I have to say, what, you know, what way am I codependent? Am I codependent on you for paying my rent? Okay, I don't like that. You paying my rent invites me to be dependent on you in ways that I don't like. Yeah. So you identify the way in which you're codependent. And then you say, okay, I would like to set a boundary. And the boundary will be, I'm going to pay my own rent. Cool. Mm-hmm. What do I need to do to pay my own rent? Do I need to get a better job? Do I need to get a job? Or do I need to just extend uh, language and let the person know my intent? Hey, I really appreciate, you know, you helping me these past several months, years, whatever. I'd like to start paying my own rent, but I can't yet because I don't quite have the job or the finances in place. Let me get on my feet and we'll strike an agreement and we'll say, by this day, I'm going to start paying my rent in full. Cool. Mm-hmm. And then you bust your ass to make sure that you can, you know, take care of that obligation. Yeah. Get a job, get a second job, um, you know, whatever it is, sell your electric Roomba uh, lawnmower so that you can pay your rent. <laughs> you know, whatever you have to do. And then you set that boundary, you meet that boundary, and then you maintain that boundary. Yeah. Month after month after month, or even day after day, depending on the kind of boundary that you're setting. Mm-hmm. Kind of the steps for me are recognizing that you're in the codependent system, deciding that you want out of it. Two, recognizing what kind of a boundary will be helpful. Number three would be setting that boundary. And then the hardest one of all, the hardest one of all, number four, is maintaining that boundary effectively over a long period of time. Yeah. That honestly, in my opinion, is the hardest part about setting boundaries. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you just answered this next question, which says, once we realize we're codependent, how do we know if we're on track to healing mm. and what does healing look like? Which I think you were just, you know, that list you just went through is sort of steps to healing, wouldn't you say? Well, no, absolutely. It's a good indicator that you're actually taking steps to do that thing. I think maybe a more visceral indicator or a more physiological indicator is if you ask yourself, am I still setting myself on fire? to keep other people warm. Is that still part of what I'm doing? Is that still part of what I'm feeling? Hmm. Am I still having this tug, having this urge to continually sacrifice my core identity, my core beliefs, my core behavior, my authentic sense of who I am? Am I sacrificing that in order to be acceptable to other people? Mm -hmm. And that's a feeling that we're going to have in our body. Now, Sadly, in many high-demand systems, high-demand religions as, as well as relationships, we have that ability to trust ourselves kind of sucked out of us. 
Mm. We give up control willingly often, and sometimes not even willingly. We give up that control or it's taken away from us to trust ourselves. The answers are given to us. The acceptable behavior is laid out in front of us. We may not have the ability or the habit or the pattern to trust ourselves enough so that when we need to, we just don't, we don't have the capacity for it. So a lot of the work that I do is helping people realize that they can make decisions and they can trust themselves. That takes a lot of time. Yeah. Have you ever uh, in your practice come across somebody who it looks like they are choosing to get very wrapped up in somebody else, possibly to just take the focus off of themselves? Is that something that happens? That's me emotionally regulating myself because what you just described was 20 years of my marriage. Oh, wow. Right? Think about it. I hid who I am the entirety of my marriage, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. Mm. I hid that part of myself so as to outwardly appear acceptable to the community that I lived in. Mm. So do I ever work with those people? I have worked with that person every day of my entire life, and that person being me. Mm-hmm. And I work with those people, my people, yeah. every single day, mm. every single day, especially within queer space, particularly within queer space and Mormonism, where those two spaces overlap. Yeah. So if the tendency is to get all wrapped up, focused on somebody else, maybe even believing that you need them for your own survival and you couldn't survive without them, right? All of this because possibly who you think you are is an awful, abominable, terrible person and you don't even want to look at it. Often we're told that. Yeah. It's part of our core doctrinal belief system. Ah, God, I just get so angry. Mm, Yeah. I want to punch religious leaders for doing this. So I can't condone violence because I'm a mandated reporter. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things that forces me to break confidentiality is if I learn if you're a a danger to others. (laughs) So I can't condone violence. I said want to, not going to. Going to. All right. Perfect. Okay. So (laughs) just want to. In the hypothetical world of wanting to punch church leaders, I completely understand that. Completely understand that. But, but let's be real about that because Boyd K. Packer had a, a talk about a missionary companion punching his gay companion and it being justified. Oh, my gosh. Look up the little factory speech. Mm. I believe it's in the early 80s on YouTube. Not surprised. Not surprised. Not surprised. Yeah, so I can't condone violence, unlike certain church leaders. Right. So maybe there's two... Well, there's lots of ways to be a codependent. One of them, what you're describing is you notice that you are setting yourself on fire to keep that person warm. Mm-hmm. What if it's in reverse and you are finding that you are actually demanding a lot of another person? Ooh, that's actually a good uh, reframe or a good new way to look at it. Because we usually look at the examine the codependent relationship from the perspective of the person who is codependent. 
If you are the person causing the codependent relationship, one of the things that you... And you may be doing this either knowingly or unknowingly. Let's be real about that. Right. You may be unwittingly creating a codependent relationship. Mm. I think one of the things that you can do, again, is recognize the nature of how someone else is codependent upon you. Call it out. Say, hey, I'm noticing some, some, some things about our relationship that I'd like to change. Yeah. How would you feel about X? How would you feel about Y? And then making sure that that communication is clear, it's consistent, mm-hmm. and whatever boundary you put in place, you know, is going to happen for a long period of time. That's a really good question. I don't know that I actually ever get a chance to work with the other side of the codependent relationship because usually the other person, if it's a true codependent relationship, they usually either don't see anything wrong with it or they have kind of a, uh, we call it a, a cluster B personality disorder. They're, they're, they're either narcissistic or they're borderline uh, and they're kind of, they enjoy, they demand this energy from other people and they, they thrive and they feed on it. They see it as a source of fuel. And we've got a bunch of narcissism questions uh, coming up. Oh, I love those. Right? There's two more codependent topics here. Okay. How do you protect yourself from not becoming codependent in a new relationship? Mm. I'm finding navigating boundaries difficult after a 16-year marriage with codependency issues. Ooh. So noticing that you're sliding into a codependent relationship, yeah, that can be kind of scary. Especially if you're at the early point of like a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. There's this really fun part of an early romantic relationship called limerence. You know, there's a question about that. About limerence? Awesome. There is. Coming up. Coming up. <laughs> so should I hold off on the limerence thing? Yeah, we'll hold off on limerence. We'll come back. And actually, that's the funny thing about limerence is you actually can't hold it off because it's this is it's like that locomotive that's just like burr, 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 burr. Um, if you notice you have a tendency to want to go into a codependent relationship, just call it out. There's a, a cliche in therapy called name it to tame it. And it's a cliche because we use it all the time. And it's a cliche because it works. Mm. You know, improve that communication with your partner. Um, make sure that you can have an open, di- open, honest and non-judgmental dialogue. So that you can have these conversations and have it not be an issue. Oh, I'm noticing this. I wonder how you would feel about this. Or this is making me nervous as we move forward in our relationship. These are some things that I'm concerned and, and, and a little bit afraid of maybe. I wonder if we can make sure that as these things come up, we don't fall into this pattern. Mm-hmm. Just calling it out, speaking about it very clearly. Don't hide behind innuendo. Don't hide behind sarcasm. If there's an elephant in the room, please address it. Mm-hmm. Often, if there's one elephant in the room, there is a small herd of elephants in the room. <laughs> very, very, very common. Also, if you've been in a narcissistic relationship in the past, or and you consider yourself an empath or empathetic, mm-hmm. you have a personality type that you may be predisposed to finding individuals who demand a codependent relationship. That can also be true of people who have a tremendously strong fawning response. And fawning and codependency often go together very, very closely. Mm -hmm. I think the open communication is key. Yes. So this one kind of piggybacks on that. It says, what about having a relationship with someone who has consistently been the codependent in past relationships? They're very giving and kind, but overwhelmingly focused on you. How do you get them to be able to focus more on themselves? Mm. Show to them that you are safe. Show to them that you don't judge them. Gently nudge slash urge them to form their own sense of self. 
Often they rely on you for a sense of their identity or for their sense of identity, rather. Mm-hmm. Nudge that person into, you know, making decisions that stand alone, making decisions that are independent of your feedback. Well, thank you for asking me what I'd like for dinner. It doesn't really matter to me. I'd like to see what you'd like for dinner. Uh, simple things like that. Yeah. And not forcing it. And again, no shame or guilt because those things are really, really harmful. Right. And I feel like I have a little bit of experience on this one because Shelly has been the codependent in past relationships. I wouldn't say at this point she's overwhelmingly focused on me because I think that we do have great conversations. We really have an open dialogue all the time. (laughs) And I love your communication style with her. You guys have a really lovely uh, open, like you're saying, an open dialogue. It's beautiful. That's what it feels like. And also, I try to mirror for her independence in a loving way. It's the safest way. It feels safe. You know, she knows that I am able to meet my own needs, but she knows that I just care so much about her. Right. So there is that balance. It's like, I don't want to be so independent that I don't include her in my life and in the decision-making and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So certainly there's a balance because I can be super independent. You are like the the poster child for badass independence. (laughs) Thank you. You're like the... (laughs) Rosie the Riveter. You're like Rosie the Riveter. (laughs) Yeah. Get my kerchief. Yeah. You can, over time, in a safe way, um, in a non-judgmental way, like like you're saying, you can see improvement... With someone who has been in a codependent relationship before, and then they start to learn to rely on themselves. It takes a while. It takes practice. There's a thing that's really kind of scary that happens to people often in a kind of an overbearing or um, maybe even a hovering parent or a narcissistic parent or a, a, a helicopter parent that you teach your child helplessness. Mm. You literally teach them that they can't do anything for themselves. And as that child gets older, they will continue to seek out relational partners that reinforce their sense of not being able to do anything for themselves. And or they are so, I don't want to say helpless because they they do have it within them to help themselves. They've just had that capacity kind of sucked out of them from years and years of being treated as uh, unable to do anything for themselves. Yeah. Often, you know, with parents, clearly it would be. The parents don't trust them to make any decisions, so then they learn not to trust themselves. I have a very, very uh, amazingly awesome friend. I'm broadcasting this on TikTok right now, and so they can hear my side of the conversation. Comments are coming in. Comments are coming in from a (laughs) clinician, and she's feeding me some language that I I maybe have forgotten, but I'd like to include. Okay. This thing about the helplessness that we're taught, it has a name. It's called learned helplessness. So Google will be your friend there. And then she gave me this mantra that I, that I really, really love. I'm going to abscond with this. I'm going to appropriate. Love has no butts. Oh. What if it's a really shapely butt and you're into that sort of thing? That sounds like a line from PB's Great Adventure. Let's talk about your big butt. Let's talk about your big butt, Simone. <laughs> I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> 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 Don't get me started on Pee Wee. I love Pee Wee. So here's my little Pee Wee. Oh, Jesus Christ, did I just say that? Here's my <laughs> Pee Wee. Tra- <laughs> well, I am trans after all, so I, ha- I can make all the trans jokes I want. Leave it in, Dan. 
Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I recorded on audio tape the entire film. <laughs> and I would play it in my car's tape deck, my little Volkswagen Jetta. Uh-huh. Jesus helped me find my Jetta keys so I could drive it around. <laughs> so I would, I, would play, I would play Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the entire soundtrack, all the Danny Elfman songs, all the dialogue. <laughs> Tequila! Mm-hmm. Best karaoke song ever because it has one word. That's right. And all you have to do is just dance. Um, let us get to that love and limerence question since we tabled that. Uh, this listener wants to know the difference between love and limerence. Oh, okay. Love and limerence. Good God Almighty. <laughs> Honestly, this is a conversation that I'm having with at least three of my clients right now. <laughs> really? No, I'm serious. So the limerence is just like this overwhelming, uh, kind of almost incapacitating, obsessive thinking, speaking, connecting with uh, in a way that you really can't control, but in a way that just makes your heart go pitter-patter. The butterflies, you want to tell everybody about this new partner. They can do no wrong. Yeah. You just love them, and I want the whole world to know about it. Think about Tony. Think about Tony in West Side Story. Oh, sure. That's Limerence. Maria. I've just met, I've just oh, here, met a girl named Maria. Named Maria. Yeah, I'll follow you. Yeah, key. I'll match sorry, your key. I'm, yeah. I'm in an annoying key. It's for an alto. It's very specific. Yeah, right. You're the alto part. I'm probably the, depending on what range my voice is kicking into on any given day, I can be a bass or I can be a quasi wannabe soprano. So, Well, that's a great range. But yeah, Tony and Tony West Side Story. When Tony and West Side Story meets Maria at the dance and there's that scene where the background fades and they only see each other and he has to see her and she has to see him and he goes to the wedding dress store and he's just talking about Maria to the the shopkeeper, uh, whatever the fuck his name is, old guy. Um, he, just, he just can't shut up about Maria. I just met a girl named Maria. Yeah. Uh, my favorite movie, by the way, is West Side Story. Oh, did not know this. But that's Limerence. Yeah. Love. Let's put it into the context of popular TV culture. Since we're using Tony and Maria as the Limerence, maybe love, if we want to maybe go back to a television show from our common past, love might be Ma and Pa Ingalls. Okay. Where there's just a steady, constant partnership where they rely on each other for a lot of their needs, but then they also know that each of those people stand alone yeah. as individuals with their own needs. Mm-hmm. Ma and Pa Ingalls, actually, I, I kind of go back to their relationship a lot as a really nice example of interdependence. If codependence is unhealthy, then there is a healthy form of codependence, which is called interdependence, Hmm. where I do rely on you for certain things. Sure. And you give them to me freely, and you rely on me for certain things, and I give them to you freely with no expectation of anything in return. Yeah. It's not a transactional relationship. And I know that you may need time alone. You may need your space to do your thing. And when you're doing that, I'm not threatened. Mm -hmm. And you, in turn, give that space to me. Ma and Pa Ingalls really had that kind of in spades. Mm-hmm. So limerence is Tony and Maria, and then love would be Ma and Pa Ingalls. Both cis, het, white, you know, examples, but, you know, I mean, that's who I am, and except for the cis, het part. What about Joe and Blair on the Facts of Life? Come on. Joe and Blair on the Facts of Life, they were two <laughs> closet lesbians. Um, and I think that Joe was probably a little codependent on Blair, if I think about that. 
You think? Yeah, a little bit. She acted aloof, though. She sure did. Of course she was. She was a closeted lesbian. <laughs> she had to act aloof. Katya, are we really going? I mean, we, t- we talked about Murder Meister, Meister Burger last time. <laughs> I know, I know. Ah, uh, Mr. I kind of feel like limerence is a feeling. Mm. It's definitely a feeling you have. Love, to me, is a decision. It's a choice. To me. Well, right, because the limerence, like physiologically, your dopamine, your serotonin kind of gets depleted after about 30 days. And you're not in that space of like this unconscious, uncontrollable draw towards this other person. Yeah. And then you settle into the kind of the, the day in, day out, you know, what's it take to maintain this relationship? Are we spending that time with each other? Are we dedicating specific time for us to build the relationship, to continue to get to know each other? Are we really making that effort? Over a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes people don't know that there's a 30-day kind of a time limit on limerence. They may not understand the physiology involved. Yeah. Uh, and that 30 days, they come crashing down and that might leave them a little bit disappointed. Like, where has the love gone? After the love has gone, what used to be right is wrong. <laughs> Can all that's lost be... That's basically a song about limerence ending. <laughs> Right. After the love is gone. Key change. Yeah. Youth the right is wrong. Right. So that's kind of the end of limerence. Yeah. And this person is looking for a new engagement of that type of love or that pattern of love mm. in a continual way of what they used to have. And if they don't have that, they get kind of sad, get kind of bummed. I stretched limerence out, I think, to two years once. Really? How'd you do that? Cocaine? <laughs> <laughs> Don't give away all my secrets, Kimberly. (laughs) We don't kiss and tell. That's right. (laughs) I don't know. It was like my first love, I guess. Who the heck knows how that happened? But I was young and naive. First loves are tough, though, because that hits you really hard. Oh, it did. That may be the first time where really the love and the serotonin and the dopamine are really taken off. And and plus, you've got often if you if that first puppy love thing happens at puberty, now you've got hormones involved there. You've got this really tasty cocktail of just out of control, out of control love. Yeah. Yeah. So limerence and love. We love limerence and we love love. Oh, it's a great feeling. Limerence is a great feeling. Yeah. It's better than drugs. Ooh, I'll agree with that. I mean, not that I would know (laughs) Uh about either. (laughs) Oh, me neither. Me neither. I think we should take one last break and then cover some narcissism when we get back. What do you think? Cover the narcissist. Okay. Yes. With a pillow <laughs> right on their face. Oh, wait. I cannot condone violence. Never mind. <laughs> Leave that in, Dan. <laughs> Be right back. All right. We're back with some questions about narcissism. You ready? Narcissism. Na- narcissism. Give me an na- end. Narcissism. Na- mm-hmm. Narcissism. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's the Musically Inclined podcast today. Gotta love the musicals. I guess I'm feeling something. I'm feeling some kind of way. Yeah. Is it love or limerence, Kimberly? <laughs> Maybe it's love. Maybe it's limerence. Could this be love that we've been looking for? Is this love that I'm feeling? Okay. I love that. How do you recognize when a covert narcissist might be trying to hoover you back in? Which I think is hilarious because we were talking about Roombas earlier. So shout out to Hoover. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Hoover cast. 
Now, do we know what the word Hoover means for our listeners from this state? Like suck you back in. They suck you suck back you in. Back yeah. in. Yeah. So hoovering is yes. vacuuming. Yes. Uh, so with that context in mind. Speaking of context, I want to read this context. Uh, this person says, it seems my mother is a covert narcissist. Mm. I've been casually ignoring contact for a few months under the guise of being super busy with grad school and work. I've noticed that in distancing, my mom has been trying more consistently to contact me through social media, mm. direct messages, mm. emails, mm. texts, mm. calls, mm. packages, mm. and even certified mail. Mm. <laughs> I checked with my siblings. Wow, she's really going at it. I got nine red flags flying over here. I'm just telling you. <laughs> I know it. Uh, check with my siblings, and she's still treating most of them badly. So while I feel terribly guilty about not responding, I also think I'm making the safe slash self-preservation decision for myself because the contact doesn't feel like genuine care. Mm. So that's the context. And the, to return back to the original kernel, what's the question again? How do you recognize when a covert narcissist might be trying to hoover or suck you back in? Well, she just recognized and described very clearly many of the signs. Yeah. They don't respect boundaries. Mm -hmm. They will use every means possible. Uh, when a boundary has been set, they will use every other means possible. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't sound like she's she's a very covert narcissist at all, because a covert narcissist, you may not really recognize the symptoms or the signs. Mm. This sounds like more, like more like an overt narcissist. Okay. Sending things certified mail? Yeah. That's pretty obvious that she's trying to get around a boundary. <laughs> it's like being served divorce papers. <laughs> it is like that. Oh, my God. Now, I have a receipt from the post office that tells me, you received this piece of correspondence. Uh-huh. Can you answer the things that I asked? Yeah. No, no. Mom, stop. Yes. And to the writer, maintain your boundary. This is a perfect example of the person trying to suck you in, mm -hmm. use you as fuel, and they may have seen that relationship in the past and enjoyed that. It may have served them. And now that you're setting those boundaries, they are desperate to get you back. Yeah. Oh, but the guilt. And feeling guilt. Oh, the guilt. Now let's review. Guilt is an internal expectation. Shame is an external expectation. What she's feeling that she's calling guilt is actually shame. Ooh, okay. She set her own bar, and what she's feeling is an external pressure to change her bar. That's shame. It's hard, though. I get it. I have a mother that's similar, and mm -hmm. I get those guilty pangs, too, when, you know, when I feel like I'm not doing enough. Sure. According to her, I'm not doing enough, or that's the impression. She doesn't overtly say it, but that is definitely the impression I'm left with, that I could do more. That's... The kernel of Mormonism, you can always, you can always do more. Yeah, well, evangelical. The list never gets shorter, it only gets longer. For sure. And that's tough. It is tough to balance uh, what's good for me and what is, you know, supposedly good for my mother. That's a challenging predicament. And let's pull the word good out of there. Let's, let's pull the morality out of that. Let's go maybe replace the word good with helpful, healthy, beneficial. Yes. Because it might be good for her and terrible for you. Right. It might be helpful for you and completely ego-shattering for the other person. Right, because it's never enough. Let's remember that the, at the core of every narcissist is an individual that is as fragile as painted glass. Yes. They may appear externally as a cannonball, 
but internally, they really truly are just a piece of painted glass. That is specific language that a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, Leslie, also from Virginia, she actually shared this with me this morning. We were talking about narcissism. Mm. And she shared that example with me, and I'm like, wow, I am definitely going to steal that language because it is really uh, a very beautiful example of how outwardly the narcissist appears to us like a bull in a china shop. Yeah. This cannibal that just can't be stopped. But at the inside, there's a wounded little child mm -hmm. that was so, so damaged and they're so afraid of that inner child wound being shown to the world that they form this giant shell of protection around them. Now, the one thing about narcissism that's interesting is that bullying person might only be a bully with their partner, might only be a bully with their spouse, might only be a bully with their kids. But to the rest of the world, this is a person that can do no wrong. Mm -hmm. They're a charmer. Uh, they, they're a successful business person. There's no way. I've known this person for 30 years. They're wonderful. Right. But in reality, the person, the individual that's in that closed system suffers the narcissistic abuse. And the narcissist, the covert narcissist externally has created a world where no one would ever believe what the inner person is suffering from. And that leaves the inner person feeling very alone, very trapped, and kind of very stuck and captive. And it kind of can prevent them from reaching for help, extending outwards, looking for someone that can help them break free of this narcissistic system. It's very, very tragic. I see this very often. In fact, it was kind of my reality as well. Mm. Now, I don't want to disparage my ex-wife, but I think we both created a codependent relationship. And I think there was some narcissism in there. Mm. Again, I don't really want to throw her under the bus because she's the mother of my children. She was a good mom. She did great things for us as a family. But I think at times there was some narcissism because she was unwilling to let me develop my true self because she knew it would look badly on her. Ah, uh, wow. And I just wanted to mention one other thing to this listener with a mother situation, which I completely can relate to. The guilt feelings don't necessarily go away. So inside me is... The struggle, if you will, between obligation and choosing me. Now, I practically 100% of the time choose me. Good. Doesn't mean I don't have the feelings, though. It doesn't mean the feelings go away automatically just because I've chosen me. And that's okay. I think it's important to recognize that. Yeah, absolutely. The feelings may never go away. They're buried deep. We learn those things from very young age. Yes. Oh, and it sucks. I hate it. Absolutely. It sucks. <laughs> and I have to live with that inside myself, mm -hmm. even though I choose me at a cost, but I still choose me. It doesn't make it easy, though. Well, and so what you're describing is the way that you can recognize that you're working yourself out of a codependent relationship. Yeah. And you can look back in the rearview mirror and say, oh, ouch, this really hurts. I'm making these moves for me and it still hurts. That's a pretty good indicator that you were in a codependent system. Yeah. Well, and I can tell you exactly in a nutshell how it happened. My father died when I was 12. Oof. Everybody was falling apart. I decided to try to be the strong one. Uh, the first thing I did was I sat in his place at the dinner table because I didn't want to look at an empty chair. That was the first thing I did, and I was 12. Brutal. Just brutal. Yeah, it was brutal. I learned to grill, even though I was terrible at it as a 12-year-old. I burnt so much food trying to learn how to do this, but he did the grilling, and I loved that, and I didn't want that to, to go away just because he wasn't there. 
So I did that. And I'm sure there are other examples, but I think what happened is my mother started to rely on me more and more and more and more and more mm. because he wasn't there. She parentified you. She adultified you. Yeah. Yeah. She did. That's rough. She did. And it happened so gradually over time. You didn't know. She probably didn't know either. She has a deep narcissistic wound. It is so deep. And one day on the podcast, I can talk about it if anyone cares, but it is palpable. I think they would care because I think that listeners would know that it would could be healing for you to uh, relate that narrative. Okay. Well, I can plan to do that sometime. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Her story is heartbreaking, but it explains so much. I'm going to guess that many, many LDL listeners hearing this podcast, they're probably either emotionally quivering in tears because they're recognizing their own narcissistic system that they grew up in, that they had no choice, or... They're realizing how lucky that they didn't have that. Mm. There's kind of no middle ground on this. You either like had that and it was crushing to you. Yeah. It forced you to be a person that you didn't want to be. Mm -hmm. Or by some grace of the universe, you didn't have narcissistic parents. And it's hard for you to understand the pressure and the shame and the guilt and the fear and the manipulation and the gaslighting and the dismissal and the minimizing that comes along with having a narcissistic parent. Yeah. Sometimes I think my mother likes to just cut me down just to make herself feel good. Absolutely. I can't think of any other reason why she would do it. Mm -hmm. The most recent example, and it's been probably a couple of years now, but she's always got an issue with my hair. She's never really liked it. What's wrong with your hair? Right? I don't know. It's got a wave to it naturally, but it tends to get frizzy. So I just decided to eliminate the frizz. I straighten it, which is just something that I've been doing for the last, whatever, five years or so. And I, I find it easier to maintain. It's humid in Virginia, though. It's probably a massive pain in the butt. It's actually less irritating to me without the frizz. But anyway, whatever. Okay, good. So my mother doesn't like frizz. She also doesn't prefer my hair straightened. But one time I said to her, <laughs> I know, she cannot be pleased. Let's just shave our heads. We're shaving our heads next time we're there. Oh, she wouldn't like that either. I'd be too manly. <laughs> but um, one time I said to her, well, here's one good thing about me straightening my hair, mom. I don't have any frizz. It eliminated the frizz. You know what she said, Kimberly? Hmm. She said, you know... You're just not as beautiful as you used to be. Mm. Straight face. She said that to me. Mm. And I said, Mom, do you feel better now? Because I don't. Did you get something out of that? Because I didn't. I don't understand why you had to say that to me. Mm -hmm. If I'm not getting something out of it and you're not getting something out of it, why did you just have that conversation with me? Why did you feel the need to say that to me? Because I find that very hurtful. She didn't really have an answer. Oh, no, she said, oh, you're so sensitive. You're too sensitive. Your mother's a narcissist. Because that line right there, you're so sensitive, I didn't mean it, you can't take a joke. I did. Yeah, that is a full-blown narcissistic response to being called out. Right. Dismissal, gaslighting, yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes, yes. Yep. So anyone with a narcissistic parent, I feel your pain. And it is not easy. Uh, we're in this struggle together. Feel free to write in whenever you want because I can talk about this all day long, because this is some bullshit. You may get a flood of letters coming in. <laughs> Maybe. No, seriously, you may get a flood of letters coming in of people sending in their stories of being raised with narcissistic parents. And let's be clear, too. I mean, this the focus of the podcast is the Mormon slash ex-Mormon audience. Mormonism is a breeding ground. It's a Petri dish. 
for narcissism. It's a petri dish for codependency. Uh-huh. So if you were the result of two parents that one was a codependent and one was a narcissist, congratulations. Tell me you grew up in Mormonism without telling me. Well, my mom was a codependent. My dad was a narcissist. Mm-hmm. There you go. Boom. Boom. That's it. Yeah. That's the formula of Mormonism right there. And I wasn't even a Mormon. High demand religion. High demand religion. Patriarchal system. Yeah. But, you know... My mother had that narcissistic wound. She just absolutely did that you describe. And uh, I'll talk about it. Do you know what it is? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. It's just such a long story. They're usually very long. But I will definitely talk about that in an upcoming episode. Mm -hmm. It's heartbreaking. Most of them are. Yeah. So my nephew doesn't understand why I hide so much from my mother, meaning just things about me. Mm. But I'm in such a habit of doing so. And I hate the criticism. I just don't want to open myself up to criticism. I know she's not a safe person. This has been proven to me over and over and over. I will tell my listeners anything anyone wants to know, but I will not share things with my mother because she is not safe for me. Well, it is a boundary. It's a strong boundary. And it sounds like it's the result of many years of being burned. For sure. And at some point you said to yourself, I'm tired of being used as a fuel source for my mother. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have that vocabulary. I would not have been able to articulate that. Yeah. I went down this big self-help discovery path in my 20s. I read so many self-help books and went into therapy. I love that. I was 28 and needing to come out to my mother for the second time. It didn't stick the first time. And I was terrified. Right, right. I did a long, like, couple-year stint of therapy just trying to not be afraid of my mother. Wow. And did it work? It seems like it worked. Yes, it did. Would you describe the kind of contact you have with your mother as a pure no-contact situation, or is there some, oh, mediated or curated or moderated types of contact? It's moderated by me, meaning... When it gets uncomfortable for me or rude or just downright ugly, I just hang up the phone. I walk away. Mm. I have driven four hours to see her and she says something insulting and I get back in my car and leave. That's a firm boundary. It is a firm boundary. And once in a while, she'll get to me. Oh, yeah. She'll say something, gets under my skin. I lash out, say something that is dumb and I regret. And then, you know, it feels like, two steps backwards when you've made all this progress. But I just keep at it. I keep at it. I recognize when some uh, interactions we have are more successful than others. Mm -hmm. I don't berate myself for it. Good. I just keep practicing it. Good. It's a practice. Absolutely. It's a practice. Yep. Because that Hoover thing, they will try to suck you back in over and over and over. But I do have some contact with her. She's very frail. She's 89. We talk on the phone. I have groceries delivered to her. My sister brings her meals. We have someone come in and help her with cleaning and stuff. She's not to the point where she needs help with bathing and dressing. But, you know, we're all helping her, even though nobody in the family wants to. We still are. (laughs) It can be important to remember that the, the narcissist's main job is to create chaos in your life. And as long as they can create some form of chaos... You are giving them back fuel for them to move to the next step. Uh So the only way you can really, truly uh, remove their ability to create chaos in your life is to go full on no contact. Yeah. Now, it sounds like what you've done is created a form of a moderated or a minimal type of a contact, which we call gray rocking, which means we turn ourselves into the least interesting, 
most boring version of ourselves possible. You mirror back exactly what they say. You just say, oh, okay, well, to the store. Where'd you go? To the store. Where'd you get, you know, stuff? Mm-hmm. I think we talked about that last time. I don't think we went into the definition of it. So that's really helpful. I wasn't sure what that was. Yeah, the gray rocking is just you pretend that you're a gray rock. You don't respond to anything. You don't give any fuel in return. If you're offended, you keep the fuck yous to yourself and you just, you know, respond minimally. Yeah. The least amount of energy you put back into that narcissistic personality, the less fuel they have and the less, what ultimately happens is they get bored. They see that they're going to spend a lot of energy trying to get chaos and fuel back from you. Uh And if you don't return it back to them, they see, oh, well, I'm I'm just bored with this. They're going to move on to the next source of easy fuel. Oh, wow. That is so smart. I'm going to do more and more and more of that. Mm -hmm. Be a gray rock. (laughs) I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, because I can get sucked into it. And even the tiniest little tiniest bit of being sucked back into it is creating chaos, which fuels them. Mm -hmm. Fucking narcissists. Fucking narcissists. And, 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 you know, I swear I say fucking narcissists, (laughs) but let's be real. If we really examine that personality type, we can have some compassion for a narcissist. Yes. Because we know that their external shell is the result of, it's the symptom of a deep, deep, deep personality shattering wound. Yes. I think it's important to remember that. I mean, we can set our boundaries. We can be uh, and as firm as we possibly can. And that stuff is very, very, very helpful. I don't want to tell people how to react to narcissists because many people have been just crushed, crushed literally by narcissists. Mm-hmm. If you have the capacity for a tiny bit of understanding about the narcissistic wound, then you can kind of build some context uh, around their early childhood you know, trauma, really big T, major trauma that forced them to develop a narcissistic personality. It's really, really sad. Yeah. And if you can think about that person and maybe extend some pity at the center of your rage, at the center of your anger, if there's a little kernel of pity, that will kind of give you some idea about where, you know, where you can start that compassion from. And that has helped me. Mm -hmm. Knowing about my mother's childhood has helped me feel compassion for her. Yeah. Doesn't let her off the hook. But it does help me. No, exactly. Yeah. Yep. That's the maintaining of the boundary. Mm-hmm. I love this one. How do you tell someone they're a narcissist? Hey, you're a narcissist. Work on it. How do you have that conversation, Kimberly? You don't. You do not. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because A, by having the conversation, you're now a fuel source for them. <laughs> and they will engage you when they will say, well, no, I'm not. Uh-huh. And by them saying, no, I'm not. Now you're engaged in a dialogue with them about them trying to prove to you, I'm sorry, you trying to prove to them that they are the narcissist. The longer that conversation goes, the more fuel you're giving them. Again, their main role is to create chaos in your life. So by you reaching out to them and saying, hey, yo, dude, narcissism right in you. I'm seeing it. They're going to go, they'll turn the tables. They'll play the victim. They can lash out. Now this is the overt narcissist. Or and the violent narcissist that uses retribution as a way to get back at being called out on their narcissistic behavior. And we did go over that last time. Mm-hmm. That to violent or volatile narcissist is very, very dangerous. Yeah, that's true. This one, how do you not feed into a narcissist? I say, hang up the phone, walk away, end the conversation, do what you have to do to get out of that situation. Yeah, exactly what you said. Walk away. Uh, sadly, we can't always walk away. If you can walk away, walk the fuck away. Yeah. Can you also say, um, I'm not comfortable with this conversation or 
that hurt my feelings. You can say things like that, but if you say, I, you hurt my feelings, they're going to say in response, well, you take things too seriously. You're too sensitive. It was just a joke. Yes, they will. How much fuel do you want to give these people? Why do we care? Why do we care to give a narcissist fuel? Do you think that less of yourself that you have expendable fuel to give to a narcissist? You know, and my mother has asked me this question. Why do you care what I think? Mm. You're my fucking mother. You're my mother. Why wouldn't I care? I wanted to care at one time, Mm -hmm. but that's gone. You know what I mean? Of course you want people to admire you or approve of you or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Think you're a good person and not going to hell, which my mother doesn't think. She may be asking you, why do you care? Possibly as an act of sabotage so that you will leave her. Uh Uh-huh. So that she can say, you never loved me at all. Right. So that she can play the victim and she can get sympathy from those around her Uh and make you the villain. Another one of the narcissist tactics is to turn the subject of the narcissism into the villain. Mm. And they do that by poisoning the well. When they're called out on the narcissism, they go around and spread rumors. They rely on their charismatic history to remind people that they are the good guy. There's a thing that we call scorched earth policy. The narcissist, if they're really called out on their narcissistic behavior, they will just cut off any relationship with anybody and just break all ties off. Often, narcissist does end up lonely because they just burn through friendships over and over and over. Mm, Which ties into this question, how to cope with the narcissist making you seem crazy and convincing others you are basically evil. How do you deal with that? Boundaries. It's, it's all about self-worth. It's all about self-fortitude. And it's all about timing, too. Can you leave that system? Because honestly, if they're crazy making with you, that's the gaslighting. That's one of the favorite techniques of the narcissist. Yeah. To make you question your own sense of reality, to make you question the facts. One thing that you can do if you find that they're a narcissist in your system making you feel crazy is write everything down. Document everything. Yeah. Because ultimately what they want to do is make you question your own sense of self, mm-hmm. your own sense of what's right or wrong, your own sense of your own ability to make decisions for yourself so that you rely on them and feed them more fuel. And if they're talking shit about you, basically, to other people and making you look like an asshole or whatever they're doing, mm-hmm. it might be helpful to not listen. Come up with your own sense of who you are. And that can be very difficult if the narcissistic abuse and the gaslighting has, has lasted for decades. That can happen very easily. Oh, yeah. That is a process, too, mm-hmm. where you come to see value in yourself. That takes a long time sometimes. Realizing that who you are is more important than who the narcissist tells you you are. Yeah. All of this takes so much work and practice. I'm not saying it's not worth it. Oh, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Yeah. And in my own journey, I feel like I am 100% worth it. Has it been easy? No. No, 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 no. But worth it. I never said it would be easy. I only said it would be worth it. (laughs) There's a Mormon meme about Jesus saying that. Really? (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) I never said it would be easy, (sighs) but I said it would be worth it. Yeah, fuck you, Jesus. Oh, did I say that out loud? (laughs) Yeah, fuck you, Mormon Jesus. And it half sounds like a L'Oreal commercial. Right. I'm worth it. Because you're worth it, right? Yeah. Okay, we've got one more question. Yeah. How can you set boundaries between your parents and your growing teenage children? Hmm. We actually had a letter like this recently. Is it okay for them to talk about religion and politics when you don't agree? Or should this person step in as a parent and get them to stop? 
They say, long story short, my 14-year-old wants nothing to do with religion and doesn't like politics or political talk, and my parents are super right-winged Catholics who leave Fox News running in the background for background noise. He doesn't want to go over there if he has to hear that stuff, but he wants to see my parents. Mm. Should he say something or should I? And he's 14. Who's the parent? Well, not the 14-year-old. Right. The parent has to say something. That's an unrealistic expectation. You do not, you know, the child cannot speak up for themselves, especially with a narcissist, especially with a narcissist with a power dynamic in place, such as a grandparent. No, that is extremely unfair and unrealistic for the parent to assume that the grandchild can set that boundary. No, the parent has to set that boundary. Often that boundary needs to be no contact. Yeah. Because honestly, if the child is over there at all, grandparents have a chance to kind of spread whatever it is that they want to spread. Yeah. If the parent doesn't want that thing spread, that's on the parent to determine what the boundary looks like and how porous or how non-porous the boundary is. That's all on the parent. For sure. And it could be a supervised visit. That's called moderated or mediated contact. Yeah. And if you set the boundary, uh, no Fox News while we're over here. Mm -hmm. And you go in and Fox News is playing. You get to say you know what? We had an agreement, or I thought we had an agreement. No Fox News while we're over here. We're leaving. Get it all in writing. Get it all in writing. You could. They could say, We forgot. It was an accident. We forgot. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, they could do this. This is passive aggressive. They could say, Well, we really wanted to watch our program, but we're not allowed to while you're over here. Classic. It's very Mormon, too, that tactic. Passive aggression, for sure. <laughs> right? <laughs> Funny. Are we wrapped up on narcissism? Have we beat that narcissistic dead horse? Oh, can you ever be wrapped up on narcissism? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, my God. I don't either. Whew. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for these questions. Those are great questions. Yeah. And thank you, honestly, for digging. That's not easy stuff to share, even anonymously. I want to validate that and celebrate that people are able to identify and share those examples and those questions. That's really big. I agree. Wow, there's so much shame wrapped up in a lot of these relationships. Oh, absolutely. So, yes, kudos. Everybody pat yourself on the back. That is amazing. Good job. Um, I want to thank the moderators of the Facebook discussion group. These comments came in through our Latter-day Lesbian podcast discussion group on Facebook. I remember that. You put a query out for the questions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Queers making queries. Look at that. Queer queries. <laughs> Cheers, queers. I think, Kimberly, you asked that question in the group. Oh, did I ask that? I think it was you. Yeah. I'm so smart. Absolutely, you are. 100%. <laughs> I want to thank our moderators, Alice, Jessa, and Jamie, for help with that group, moderating that group. Couldn't do it without you. Thank you. All right. Uh, should we thank Dan from Extension Audio? We love Dan. Thank you, Dan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, everybody, don't forget, steer clear of those fucking cults, because they're no joke. They are no joke. Yeah. Talk to you later, everybody. Adios. Adios.